We are continuing this morning. We are carving our way through the Easter narrative in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 19, verse 1 this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn there now to John 19, 1. And what we have established over the last couple of weeks is that the Easter narrative, it is impossible to overstate how important the Easter narrative is. It is the greatest story ever told. It's more than a story. It's the single greatest piece of news and truth you will ever encounter in this life. It is the most eternity-altering, life-changing truth in the world, and it's talking about the nothing less than the single greatest event in the history of our planet. How's that for hype? This is Easter narrative is all about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our King. We acknowledge and we remember and we celebrate that he died on a cross for our sins in our place. He died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose in triumph and in victory. This is news worth celebrating, is it not? So let's go. John 19. If you have missed the last couple of weeks, here's what you've missed in the Easter narrative. Uh, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, a former friend. He has been led before the Jewish religious leaders for questioning. He was arrested, mistreated, abused. He's then led to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because the Jews are trying to get him put to death. Pilate has questioned him. He's found no guilt in him because he's innocent. But they brought Jesus out before the crowd, and the crowd shouts, no, crucify him, crucify him. That is where we pick up the story. John 19, 1 says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself, what? The son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, Caesar being the Roman emperor of the day. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. That'd be noon. So this has been going on all night, all morning. It's noon. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is large, what's going on here. And as we kind of break this down, we'll carve this up into a few sections. The first thing we need to look at is the treatment of Jesus in this sequence. Or perhaps more aptly, the mistreatment of Jesus in this sequence. It starts out by saying, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That's a seven-word sentence that you can blow right past super easily. But we need to pause on that and talk about it a little more because we need to understand as best as we can the depth of what Jesus endured, what he went through for us. So this is slightly graphic, but it's important. Flogging was not just a tap on the wrist. There, there, you did something wrong. Don't do it again. Flogging was a severe, severe Roman judicial penalty. You had to have done something real bad to get a flogging. And what they would do is they would put a man down on the ground, they would expose his back so it was bare skin, and you would be hit with a whip or a lash or a rod of some kind. You'd be whipped repeatedly. I do not have a very high pain tolerance. I don't think I would do exceedingly well with that. The pain, even just of whatever they're hitting them with. I don't care if you're hitting me with something soft. It probably hurts. But you can imagine just the blunt impact on his back, how much that would hurt, how much pain there is involved there. However, it gets worse because it wasn't just any old whip. They were often embedded with pieces of bone or metal or rock. So not only would you be hit and you'd have just the impact of the, of the whip, but it would cut you all over. And not only would it cut you, it had the capability to latch into you when it hit your skin. And when the, the guy would pull the whip back, it had the, the capability to pull and tear stuff. So Jesus is nothing less here than beaten to a bloody pulp. That's what the flogging is. Roman flogging was so severe, many people often died just from the flogging. This is no light treatment of Jesus at all. So they flogged him. Then they started to mock him. It says they came, the Roman soldiers came and twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on Jesus' head. Again, low pain tolerance, low pain threshold. You can find any old thorns and they would hurt me, okay? But these are not like little thorns on most of the bushes we have around here that are like this. We don't know exactly what kind of tree or bush or plant these thorns came from, although some people speculate they came from what's known as a jujube tree. Probably not where we got our jujube candy from. Which, if we're being honest, on a sidebar, they're not that great. Can we just establish that? There are far better candies in the world than jujubes. We can do better, okay? Sorry if that offends you. I'm not actually sorry, okay? If it is the jujube tree or something like that, the thorns are long and they're sharp and they place them on his head. So you can just think the pressure of this thing going on your head, but also they're sharp. They're cutting his head. He's bleeding from the head too. Then they put a purple robe onto him. A purple robe 
signified royalty. Only rich, powerful, important, royal people would wear purple in this day. And they put it on to him to make fun of him, to mock him. They then cry out, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mock-worshipping him, which is painfully ironic because that's what we're actually supposed to be doing, but they're doing it to belittle him. I don't know about you, if you've ever been mocked before, it's not super fun. It's not like, oh, I'm making fun of you because you have your shirt on backwards today, and tomorrow I'll forget about it. It's not just a light teasing or joking around. You guys know about mocking. They're they're directly attacking his identity. They're going right to the core. If you've ever had any kind of treatment like that in your life, you have a piece or a little bit of a taste of what it felt like for Jesus, mocking him. It says, then they struck him with their hands. So they haven't done enough to him yet. Now they've got to beat him more with their hands. After that... He's publicly humiliated. It says that Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowd. And before the crowd, he's wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And he's bleeding, no doubt, all over. And he's been beaten to a pulp. And Pilate says, behold the man. Here he is. Now other people are looking at him. All the crowd can see him. After that, Jesus is brought back inside and he's interrogated further. Again, this is not just light question asking. How you doing today? That's not an interrogation. This is intimidating. This is, he's trying to put the pressure onto Jesus. If you've ever been interrogated before, again, you kind of have a taste of what this is like. Pilate says to him, where are you from? You can just almost hear the urgency in his voice. He's getting more intense about it. And after all of this, all of this horrible treatment of Jesus, The thing that tops it all is then he's ultimately rejected. They come out and Pilate says, behold the man. And the Jews respond, crucify him. We want nothing to do with this guy. Put him to death. He ought to die. Verse 12, if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar. He's a criminal. He's a no good Nick. He needs to be put away. Verse 15, away, away with him. Crucify him. The people that Jesus loved, literally the God who created them, is standing before them. And they say, away with him. This is horrible. This is tragic. And what you need to understand through all of this, it's heavy. It's large. You need to ask yourself, why? Why is this happening to Jesus? Why is this going on? He's literally innocent of any crime. He didn't do anything. Why this? I'll tell you why this. He's doing this for you. He is doing this, and make no mistake, he is allowing this to happen to him. We've established this all along. Jesus is God. He has foreknowledge. He is in control over all things. He easily could be more perceivably in control of this. He could bust out of here. He could slip away. He could do whatever to get out of this treatment. But he endures it. He takes it on to himself, even though he didn't deserve it. We deserved it. You deserved it. I deserved it. But he took it. Why? Because he loves you. I don't know what your life is like, what your church background is like, what your present state 
of affairs is like, but I want to speak something out over every single one of you guys. God loves you. You say, oh, even me. Yes, even you. Yes, in spite of that thing that you've done. Yes, in spite of your past. Yes, in spite of all of your flaws and failures. God loves you. And greater love has no one than this for him to lay down his life for his friends. God loves you. And he took this for you. Because you see, we were made by God and for God. We were made to be in a relationship with God and be close to God and to walk with God and to worship God. That's what life for human beings is supposed to be like for all of us. But we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all turned away, turned our backs on God. We've rebelled against him. We've treated him with contempt. We've broken his laws. We've violated his character. We have all sinned, and sin separates us from God. Our sin prevents us from being able to have that relationship with God, which is what it was supposed to be all along. It's it's impossible for us to live the lives we were created to live in and of ourselves because of our sin. And the wages of sin is death. Literally, something must die for sin. No sin goes unpunished. The the, the way it goes is you sin, you pay for it with your life. Death, both physical and spiritual. We're talking separation from God, no relationship with God, punishment, condemnation, where you're left to pay for your own sins. That's what hell is. It's a real place. But, God so loved the world. God so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus did not deserve this. You deserved it and he took it for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved, so that you could be raised to new life, so that you could literally live the life you were created to live and be positioned for eternity in the next life. Jesus did this for you. Jesus paid it all for you. Jesus took on your stripes and your punishment. I think it would be fitting for us to give him some thanks and some praise for that today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So that's the real meat of our text right there. That's what we absolutely need to take home and take to the bank is is this treatment of Jesus But like I said a couple of weeks ago, as we're exploring the Easter story, we're going to make some sidebars. We're going to take some detours. See me rubbing my hands together evilly? We've got a couple of little detours to make in our text here today. I don't know who these are for. They're for somebody. Let's go for it. First thing I want to talk about is the path of Pilate. If you read this text and you look at it closely, Pilate, the governor, the guy who's in charge here, he takes a very specific path. In fact, he starts out over here with, Jesus is innocent and I don't want anything to do with him. I'm not going to put him to death. Let's let him go. And by the end of our text today in verse 16, it's, then he delivered him over to be crucified. What in the blazes happened between here and here? 
How did we go from this, starting out so well, to this, finishing so poorly? Pilate takes a very specific journey from here to here, and that's what I want us to explore this morning. But in order to understand the, the path that Pilate takes in this text, we need to get inside his mind a little bit. We need to understand his heart and his motivation for his actions. And it's specified here. It's fear. Fear. Fear is his motivation for doing everything that he does here. It says in verse 8, when he heard who Jesus was, he was even more afraid, is what it says. In other words, he was already afraid. Now he's more afraid. And what happens with fear in our lives, when we start to fear, start to worry, start feeling anxious, whatever you want to call it, and we entertain that fear, and we don't deal with it properly, but we just kind of harbor it and hold on to it, it can take us down this path too that Pilate is taking. This is not something that happened just to him. This can happen to any of us. So, I want you to see what he did. If you go to the next slide, there's three things that Pilate did. There's three things that this path of fear leads us on. The first thing, when you are harboring fear in your life, when you are giving into fear, following and being governed by your fear, what you're likely going to do is you're going to start trying to manipulate. Somebody say manipulate. You're going to start trying to manipulate your circumstances. You're going to say, well, I don't want to confront that fear. So if I just try really hard and use my cleverness, I can uh, change this, 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 and this around, and I can work out a favorable outcome for myself without having to deal with the fear. That's what Pilate does. He wants Jesus released. You have to remember that. It literally says he sought to release him. That's what he wants, but he's afraid of what the people are going to say. So he comes up with this convoluted, twisted, nonsensical plan to get Jesus released. So he doesn't have to deal with his fear. Here's what Pilate does. He flogs Jesus. He beats him up terribly. Crown of thorns, whip on his back, purple robe, all this. And he brings him out before the people and he says, behold the man. In other words, what he's trying to do is say, look, I beat the guy up. I beat him senseless. That's good enough for us all, isn't it? Why don't we all just go home and grab some lunch? That doesn't work. He then says in verse 6, the people yell out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, you go crucify him yourselves, Pilate says. Excuse me? We established the other week that it was not lawful for the Jewish people to put anyone to death. Here's Pilate, a government official, literally a man of the law, telling the people in public to go and break the law. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. What he's doing is he's bluffing. He says, you go crucifying, and, and, he, and he hopes that the people are going to say, well, we can't, it's illegal, and Pilate's going to say, oh, of course, how could I forget? I guess we're done here then. Sorry, guys. Doesn't work. Second thing Pilate does, when that doesn't work out for him, he starts to justify. Somebody say justify. Starts to make excuses 
for what he's doing or what he's going to do. You'll notice here in verse 13 of our text, he takes Jesus to this stone pavement place, this judgment seat in Aramaic called Gabbatha. So before this, it seems like he's talking to Jesus just kind of in his headquarters. I wouldn't say it's informal, but like it's, you know, just a, we're just talking. But now they go to the official judgment seat, the stone pavement. By the way, that word Gabbatha can be translated to mean the word elevated or elevation. So what Pilate is doing here, he goes and he sits on his high, official, exalted seat to remind himself, oh right, I am in the authority here. This is okay for me to do this. I do have the right to put this guy to death. He then says, watch this in verse 14, he says to the people again, behold your king. A few verses earlier when he was addressing the crowd, he said, behold the man. Do you see that? I think it's in verse five. Why is he man here and now he's behold your king? Because he's trying to justify in his mind, oh right, this guy is bad. He is claiming to be a king. He is deserving of death. I'm gonna be okay and in the right if I give in to this and put him to death. It's as plain as day what he's doing. And then he goes to the third thing, which is to spiral. This is where it just gets worse. Now we've manipulated, now we're justifying, and now we just go deeper into the hole. And that's what Pilate does in verse 16. He then delivered Jesus over to be crucified. That's how we got from, I wanna release him, he's innocent, to, yeah, go ahead and put him to death. Fear. And this path that fear drug him down. You know we're bringing this into our own kitchen this morning, right? You know it's coming to you and me this morning, okay? We wrestle with fear in this life oftentimes, don't we? We come into situations or circumstances. We can't see a way around it. We think it might go bad for us. We start to fear. We start to get anxious. There's literally an, an anxiety epidemic in our world. This is not something that is isolated for a few. happens to many. And when we start to gravitate toward that fear and we start to give into it and we start to hold on to it rather than dealing with it and confronting it, this same path, we come right into this. This is, this is as old as the day is long right here. I'll give you a few examples. These won't pertain to any of you guys, okay? My nose has grown, yep. What about money? We fear over money all the time. Oh, I don't have enough. I don't make enough. I'm going to run out. What if I lose my job? The inflation rate is skyrocketing. Everything costs so much. What if I don't have enough money? And we worry and we fret and we keep ourselves up at night over money. And when we harbor that longer than we ought to, one of the things we'll start to do is manipulate. Here's what we'll say. Well, I'm not going to give to God right now. I can't afford to tithe right now. I'm not going to be generous with other people right now because I need it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then we start to justify. God understands. God knows how much I make. God knows that I need this. Oh, I'm talking to somebody. And then what happens? It doesn't get any better. 
It starts to spiral. We keep going down. This is where we keep ourselves up even longer at night worrying over money. This is where we're all the more anxious about money. This is where we might start coveting other people and what they have. Well, they have money. It's not fair. I should have it too. And this is where we might even resort to trying to make money by illicit gain that God doesn't want for us. This is the path that all started with fear and it can bring you right down just like that. Here's another one. Maybe you have a fear of being alone. I'm, I'm, that could be any kind of ways, but I'm thinking especially like a romantic relationship. I don't want to be alone, and I fear being alone. So what happens is we start to manipulate. Ah, here's this person that seems interested in me, and yeah, that probably isn't a relationship I should get into. Maybe you're a Christian and they're not. Maybe you're just oil and water and you shouldn't be together. But you jump the gun because you're afraid of being alone. You take matters into your own hands. You hang a left and now you're with that person you shouldn't be with because you were afraid of being alone. When you realize that the manipulation of your circumstances wasn't all that you thought it was gonna be, then you start to justify. Hey, God knows my heart. Hey, we're not sinning sexually. If I've, oh, anyway, if I had a nickel every time, right? It's God understands. Doesn't God want me to be happy? We justify. We make excuses to do something we know we shouldn't be doing. And guess what? Then we spiral. It gets worse and not better. You keep giving more and more of yourself away to that person that you shouldn't be with more than likely you cross over into sexual immorality, just saying we're human beings, this is probably what we're gonna do. We give more and more of ourselves away in a relationship that we shouldn't be in. And it goes poorly for us. Here's one more example. Maybe you have a fear of rejection. Maybe you have a deep self-imposed need for people's approval. And, and you're worried, what if people don't like me? What if people don't accept me? So you say to yourself, I'm gonna go above and beyond, way above and beyond, perhaps in a way that's not even healthy or sustainable. I'm gonna make sure that people like me and they accept me. And so you try, try, try to please people, please others. You pour yourself out, burn yourself out. And you justify it saying, I need this. Maybe it's, a, oh, well, I never had it from my parents when I was a kid and I just really need it now. Whatever the reason is, you justify that behavior. And like I say, it spirals out of control. All of a sudden, you've got nothing left in your tank and you're left as broken and as empty and as unsatisfied as you were when you started because that's the path that fear dragged you down. I'm wondering if this is sounding strangely familiar to any of you, right? That's the path that fear takes us on. But guess what? Here's the good news. There is an alternative. There is a solution. There is a different path you can take, and it's called faith. There's fear and there's faith. Faith specifically in the Lord. Trust and confidence in who he is, in what he's done. Hey, we sang it already. All my life you have been faithful. He's never let you down once. Things might not always go the way that you want, but God has always taken care of you. He's always provided for you. He's always gotten you through. And it's to walk in that confidence. That's what faith is. What I love is that in our text in John 19, 
in the midst of all of Pilate's fear that he's giving into and he's not really dealing with very well, Jesus is revealed in the midst of it. In verse 7, it comes to Pilate's attention. This man is the son of God. Later on, Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you, a.k.a. by him. That's just a revelation of this Jesus standing before me is someone I ought to be paying attention to. His identity is revealed right in here. And the same is true today. I don't know what your fear is, but you need to understand that Jesus is ready, willing, and able and wants to reveal himself to you in the midst of your fear. He's not saying, you clean yourself up, you deal with that fear, and then you come to me. He wants to meet you right in it because he's good. Because he's good. Pilate did not get it. He did not make the right choice. He did not respond properly. But that doesn't have to be your story. When Jesus reveals himself to you in the midst of your fear, you can respond in faith to him. And you say, well, Braden, you don't understand. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how big the mountain is in front of me. And I can't see a way around it. And I say to you, friend, exactly. You need to trust in the one who can. His name is Jesus. And now for this foolishness of trying to deal with our fear and go down this terrible road that it always leads us down and it always leaves us broken and empty, it's time for the church to rise up in faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to remember who he is. You've got to remember what he's done. You've got to remember all the promises he's spoken over you. You've got to remember his faithfulness over your life. And then you stand. You don't have to be crippled by your fear. You can actually stand and put one foot in front of the other and walk. Not in your strength. Your strength and mine is like this. It's not very good. But you can walk in his strength that he supplies by his Holy Spirit. But you've got to want him. You've got to ask him, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I don't want to harbor this fear anymore. You've got to repent of that, lay it at his feet, surrender to him, and then trust in him. That is the solution to your fear. Let's move on to the last bit here, and then we'll wrap up. We've talked about the treatment of Jesus. We've talked about the path of Pilate. Now we've got to talk about the sin of the people. The crowd that's here. Obviously, they sin by getting Jesus put to death. Answer me this. Was that a good thing for them to do? No. Okay, pretty obvious. But there's another subtle, kind of a different layer of sin in this, and it's this. It's the fact that they've rejected him in the first place. Yeah, the putting him to death was wrong, but where they got off was they rejected who he is, and they resisted rather than surrendered to him. They yell out in verse 6, crucify him, right? This is when Jesus has been brought before them, revealed to them, and they say, no. Verse 15, they say, away with him, crucify him. Verse 7, they say, this man has made himself the son of God. This is tantamount to saying, hey, these claims about Jesus can't possibly be true. I don't believe it. I'm out of here. I'm a realist. I'm a, uh, an atheist. I'm a person of science, and this Jesus stuff is all horse feathers, so I'm out. That's like saying that. In verse 12, they say, you're not Caesar's friend if you release him. So now they're buddying up to the systems of the world and the institutions of the world rather than trusting in the Lord. 
And by the way, I'll just remind you, Jesus said in another place, if you make yourself a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Pretty black and white. So the people sin by rejecting and resisting Jesus here. And guess what? We are capable of the exact same thing. Very same thing. But we don't have to be. If you are not a Christian, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you have never been born again and saved by faith in him, I just need you to know something today. Yes, you might be a good person, whatever that is. You might be moral. You might do lots of nice things. You might do more good than bad even. But you're on the wrong side. It's not about what you do. It's about putting your faith in Jesus who gave everything for you. You cannot make yourself righteous. And by your non-acceptance of Jesus, obviously you're rejecting him. You're doing the very same thing the crowd in this text who's so clearly guilty and in the wrong is doing. Maybe you actively resist and reject. You just say, that's a bunch of hoo-ha. I'm not buying that. This Jesus stuff, Christians are idiots. How could you believe any of this stuff? Okay, obviously that's rejection. But also trying to be undecided about it is rejection too. Oh, yeah, I got no problem with Jesus. I'm not against him or for him. Oh, actually, if you're not for him, you're against him. That's what the word says. So you're rejecting him. Christians, most of us in the room are Christians. We may not necessarily reject Jesus the same way. You're a Christian, you're saved, that's awesome. But we can still reject in other ways and, and certainly resist him in our lives. We can get ourselves into patterns of sin as Christians and we know we shouldn't and we're digging our heels in and we won't repent. That's resisting him. We can even just simply get ourselves distracted on other things that aren't even bad or wrong or sinful on their own. But when you put them above Jesus, well, now you're resisting him because he's supposed to come first. These guys here in this text, they cry out, we have no king but Caesar, which actually the Jewish people hated the Romans. They had no use for Caesar, so that's kind of a load. But that line that, we, that, that, that they say, we have no king but so-and-so. Yeah, as a Christian, you'd probably sit here and say, I have no king but Jesus. But is that the way you live? Who do I proclaim to be king in the way that I live? in the way that my priorities are set up, in the way that I speak, in the way that I treat people, in the way that I pursue the Lord. Don't make the same mistake as them. I, I don't, like, it doesn't matter what that thing or that person even is, by the way. I just need you to know, if you have put something or someone above Jesus in your life, as a believer, it's time to repent. Repent. And at times, that's all of us. That's not like just for a few. But this is it. This is right here. Like Jesus, it's, he's making it very clear to us today. Like we, sh we, we should worship the Lord only. Only him we should serve. He comes first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength. Put him first. I was actually praying for you guys this morning and this week that the Holy Spirit would reveal that in our lives. If there is something, Jesus, that's before you in my life right now, point it out to me so I can deal with it, so I can repent.
Repent means to, to turn away. Look, here's the way I'm going. Wow, Jesus, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm laying that at your feet. I'm walking away from that. I, I mean this in the most building up sort of way possible. I suspect there are some things even in this room this morning we got to repent of. Amen. And you know what? That's a good thing. Because what Jesus is doing, he's drawing us closer to him today. So I don't know. I'll float that out there, whoever that's for. If there's something that the Lord is just knocking on your door about, it's time to deal with that thing.